it's easy sometimes, I think, to see Bartleby, the, the Scrivener, as this sort of existential hero who refuses to participate uh, and to condemn the lawyer. He's safe, he's snug, he's very conflict-averse. But as I read it, I think, would I do any better? Would I exert more charity? Would I find a way to reach this enigma? Probably not. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another edition of the Mouse Book Club. My name is David DeWayne. I'm the president of the club and your host. Today, we've got an awesome conversation. We're talking about Bartleby, the Scrivener, one of the classic American short stories uh, by Herman Melville, one of the giants and godfathers of American literature. Uh, And we are going to be in discussion with the guy who teaches Melville over at Notre Dame. Uh, Professor John Stoud serves as the acting director of the Institute for Educational Initiatives and is the executive director of the Alliance for Catholic Education over at Notre Dame, and his scholarly activities focus on the writings of Herman Melville. More importantly, Professor Stoud just has that quality of a great teacher. So I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation. Just to start this off, why Melville? Why Why did I study Melville? Yeah, why did you study Melville? You know, uh, I've always been in love with American literature, um, I suppose in some ways, because I'm American. And I think that compared to, say, British literature, especially the 19th century, I think American writers kind of tackle very difficult themes. So there's a great piece by Henry James on, the book is called On Hawthorne. He writes it in the early 1880s, where he has this litany of all the absences in uh, American culture that would have completely terrified a British writer. He says, you know, we have no churches, no universities, no Oxford, no Eton, no Harrow. And it goes on for a full paragraph about all the absences in American society, as it were. Uh, But then James, who kind of straddles, you know, he was an American by birth, but then emigrates to England and sees himself as an Englishman, but can understand both worlds. James says, the American writer realizes that a good deal remains. That's his secret. And so I've always been struck by um, the way I think many American writers kind of go for it, as it were, and ask the difficult questions about what it means to be human. Is there a God? What's the nature of God? What's the nature of nature in the world? And so because they don't have a lot of society and, and a lot of history to write about, they tend to write more about um, kind of personal human experience, etc. And so Melville, I think, in that context, um, as I was in graduate school, I just, I couldn't figure them out. So th- I felt, well, this will be good. It's not, you don't want to write your dissertation on a writer who you feel you kind of have all figured out. So it was challenging, it was dense. But I felt when I read Moby Dick and, and a story like Bartleby or Benito Serino or The Confidence Man, that here's a writer who really, is trying to come to terms with, um, on a very honest level, with the challenges of being human. So do you think, in a sense, the lack of infrastructure provided writers like Melville with a greater degree of freedom to explore the in, possibilities of literature? In some sense. I think they could, uh, they could pursue questions of religion that were more kind of elemental and primal than looking at country parsonages and all the sort of local color which is often the way religion would be dealt with in, say, Jane Austen or the Brontes or, or even in Dickens, um, where there's kind of a long-established church. You mentioned Hawthorne, another 
really significant writer of this right. era. Did they have a relationship? Yeah, Hawthorne and Melville were very good friends for a while. So when Melville was writing Moby Dick, uh, he dedicates the novel to uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne. He writes a piece called Hawthorne and His Mosses that's a kind of a critical analysis of Hawthorne's work in which he um, says that the key to Hawthorne is that he's um, willing to, uh, like all writers who master the great art of telling the truth, to find truth in darkness. And so, so there was a great friendship, lots of really wonderful letters that we have that Melville um, uh, wrote to Hawthorne. Hawthorne saved them. Alas, Melville seemed to just kind of throw away Hawthorne's letters. So we don't, you know, if anyone could find that, that would be quite a fine. But uh, they were great friends. And then had a little bit of a falling out, probably because Melville was way too intense. Yeah. What do you mean by that? You know, he just, uh, Hawthorne was... Um, you know, kind of happily married. Melville probably wasn't. Melville probably wanted more out of the friendship. Some have argued, oh, maybe Melville was secretly gay. I don't, I don't know whether that's true or not. But um, he just had an intensity of, um, of questioning that probably wore Hawthorne out a little bit. There's a great um, journal entry that Hawthorne records when Melville visits him in the late 1850s in, uh, in England on his way to do a tour of Europe. And uh, at this point, Hawthorne was the consulate in, in Liverpool. And um, they take a walk on the beach, and uh, Hawthorne writes, and I'm, I'm, I don't know the exact quote, but he says something like, um, you know, poor Melville can neither be happy in belief or unbelief. Um, and he says he's, he's sort of too honest to, uh, to sort of accept easy belief, um, but yet he can't let go of it. And so he describes him as this sort of God-haunted man, I guess you could say, who, um, who is kind of cursed by it. And he says, it is a shame for he is a good man who deserves better. You know, the, the friendship seemed to have sort of fizzled a bit. And then Hawthorne died in the early 1860s. So. Melville didn't die until 1890s, 1891, uh, 1891 maybe? 1891, correct, yeah. So his dates are actually interesting. Mm -hmm. Early 1800s to late 1800s. So basically span the whole 19th century. 19th right. century. How would you describe his times? Mm. Well, obviously times of great change um, and uh, a time of great urbanization. Um, so in, in Bartleby, he's obviously talking a lot about the setting of the city and uh, its anonymity. We're in a world where people have these professional relationships um, and the lawyer narrator knows some of the details about his characters, but their lives don't intersect really at all beyond the workplace. And everyone seems, I think, in that story, like a bit of an island. So Melville would have experienced that. He was born in New York, but it was a much smaller city than when he, he returned later in life. Um, obviously, great revolutions in communication, transportation. Um, uh, and commerce. Century, and commerce. Yeah. Uh, a century afflicted by, in the United States, certainly by sectionalism and by the great evil of slavery. Um, Melville himself um, was appalled by slavery and, um, and also um, turned a critical eye toward manifest destiny, that sort of doctrine that, you know, the United States sort of deserved to expand all the way to the West Coast. So in Moby Dick, for example, he takes some pretty critical shots at U.S. policy with respect to the Mexican War and even with respect to um, Native American populations. At the same time, he wasn't um, necessarily like a, a bleeding heart either. He tended to see that all people were kind of subject to original sin. So in a story like Benito Serino, 
he, he takes the, the, the Spanish captain who's, uh, and the American captain who are kind of naive um, about the African slaves and, and shows that to be their flaw because they can never imagine that these slaves could be intelligent or that they could be cunning and want to take over the boat through a mutiny. So sea travel was a big part of his life? Right, yeah. He was born into relative wealth and family prominence. Both his grandfathers fought in the American Revolution as colonels. So he was born into a, a pretty leisured class. When he was 12, though, his father lost everything in a panic, the economic panic of um, 1831. And um, from that point on, the family was in a state of genteel poverty. So um, they depended on other family members for their sustenance. Melville's schooling came to an end. So if you went out on a whale ship, as he did um, when he was around 20 years old, you know, whaling was in a profession maybe akin to logging or coal mining in today's world. You, you just wouldn't seek it out, especially if you weren't of a whaling family. So most young men who went, um, went on a whale ship were doing so uh, out of a certain sense of maybe economic desperation, um, as Ishmael describes himself at the beginning of the, the story. But that ship, that experience certainly changed his life and gave fodder for most of his novels. He also went to Polynesia. Yes, on that ship. He sailed, they sailed around the Horn to Polynesia. He jumped ship in the Marquesas Islands, um, lived with the natives for um, a, a few weeks probably, um, and then returned to, uh, to the harbor, got on another whale ship, went to Tahiti, was thrown in jail for desertion, got out, made his way on another whale ship to Maui, which was then the capital of the Pacific Whaling Fleet and then uh, enlisted in the U.S. Navy and returned home on um, a, uh, a frigate. So it was gone about three years. So it's really interesting to think about this. Uh, somebody who's got a lack of romanticism, a very critical eye towards mm -hmm. the world around him, getting all these experiences, right? and then just processing and processing and processing, storing mm -hmm. all, those, all that knowledge away. Did he know he was going to write? Do you think at that time? No, he probably didn't on the on the whale ship, uh, the Akushnet. He came back actually, and he was you know sharing stories of his experience with family and friends, and they said you ought to really write that down. And um, so his first novel, Taipei, which came out in uh, 1846, uh, is really an account of his adventures in the Marquesas, where he jumped ship with another man, Tobias Green, and. Um, the the book was you know very sort of sort of loosely biograph autobiographical. When uh, the story came out, it was a pretty uh, reasonable commercial success. People had a, a deep interest in reading about cannibals in Polynesia and exotic lands, um, but a lot of critics said this is clearly made up. And uh, Tobias Green read a review of it in the Buffalo uh, newspaper, and he said. Actually, no, I'm, I'm Toby in the book. And so then Melville became a bit of a literary sensation as, you know, the man who lived among the cannibals. But Moby Dick was not a literary sensation. No, not at all. Yeah. Why do you think that was? Um, it was probably a, a work that was just um, ahead of its time. And, uh, just in has, terms of the structure? or The structure, the, the complexity. It starts like many of his, um, his books as a sort of loosely autobiographical first-person account. Um, but then he starts delving into philosophy, epistemology, 
um, theology and and political criticism, and the book becomes something that uh, even Melville would say. He says in a letter to Hawthorne, he says, write one way that to sell, you know, I can, but then there's a part of me that doesn't want to just be a hack. And so he says, all my books are botches because he's he's trying to find a middle ground. It's that, it's interesting in some ways it connects one might think to contemporary filmmaking where you'll see a lot of directors sometimes that they'll make like one that's clearly like a commercial success for the production company, but then they'll make one that is a piece of craft that is not a commercial success. And they'll sort of try to straddle the line. Right, right. And it's funny because Melville has a greater sense of his own authorship through his own reading. So he talks about how he feels himself developing at an incredibly rapid rate as he reads Shakespeare and other writers and um, starts becoming, I think, uh, someone who's aware of his own gifts and and genius. Um, But he also has a young family. He needs to write to make money. But yet the the sort of the democratic marketplace isn't rewarding this. And that causes a certain deal of internal tension because he would like to think as an American writer that American audiences would – purchase and enjoy what he's producing, um, but he's confronted with, um, you know, a sense that what they like best is what he admires least in his work, just kind of the adventure travel and not some of the more philosophical um, kind of existential work. And so, uh, so it's kind of a fascinating experience. And he really only writes novels for about a 10 year period. Then after The Confidence Man, which is probably 100 years or more ahead of his time, it's very postmodern in many ways. He just stops writing narrative fiction uh, of any length and then turns to poetry. Why do you think, why do you describe The Confidence Man as postmodern? It's very slippery in terms of um, identity. So The Confidence Man is this figure who's slipping in and out of disguises. Uh, the structure of the work is... Um, is you know much more akin to a sort of a postmodern world where there's a, a lot of absurdity, and where there isn't a sort of neat and clear uh, progress and, and march to a goal. So it's another great example of looking critically at American culture. Right. What do you think Melville would be writing about if he was alive right now? Mm. <laughs> Fake news. Um, he would probably be, uh, even in his own time, he kind of lamented um, what he saw as disposable literature. So he has a letter to Hawthorne where he says, there is nothing so short-lived as a modern book. Though I wrote the Gospels in this century, I would die in the gutter. So this sense that paperbacks are coming into vogue, you know, novels are being serialized, and I think he has a sense of almost longing for a past where there were fewer works, but you know, the great works of the past survived. And so I think he's anticipating in, 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 in ways, even in 1850, what we experience now with a story, a tweet that's popular for a day, an hour, and then gone. It's a really good question. I, I think given that Melville likes to use narrative as a way to dramatize kind of deeply human conflicts but at the same time explore um, philosophical uh, questions. And he has such an elusive imagination, so he's always making references to other texts and, and genres, whether it's something sort of heavy and serious like the Bible or Shakespeare or even just um, some of the popular works of his day. 
I, I still think he probably would be trying to write fiction, especially since even in his own time, I think he, with that, that line I shared about his, his concern about literature in, the, in his time, I think he would still be trying it. Unlike someone like Shakespeare, who would probably be making films. I think you could say, oh, you know, Shakespeare would be making films. It's hard for me to imagine Melville in the film industry. Anyway. How do you teach, how do you approach teaching Melville? I think since he asks what I call a lot of uh, three-in-the-morning questions, uh, the questions that we often want to put aside until something happens and we're up in the middle of the night and, and we ask, you just wonder, why does this happen this way? Um, I try and use those questions as, as a way in because we all have them. And um, One of the things I've discovered about Melville is that there's Moby Dick. Right. Everybody thinks about Moby Dick. Right. But then there's all the other work right. that not a lot of people access. Right. You choose to focus on Moby Dick. Generally, um, because I guess I flat out love it. And I think it's one of those books that still lives in our culture. You know, when, uh, when George Bush uh, went into Iraq, they said, is this going to be, you know, his white whale? And very few people have read the whole work. But everyone kind of who's semi-literate knows the reference and knows what it means. So, um, so for those reasons uh, and others, I, I enjoy it. How do you create a feedback loop where students can start to process this in a healthy way? Yeah, well, my whole, uh, my whole approach is always Socratic. So um, just asking questions, getting them to respond. And then before class, I also they're responsible for generating a question of the day about the reading. So often we use that as a point of departure. So I can kind of gauge based on the nature of their questions. Um, what are some of the memorable ones? The surprising, um, surprising ones? Well, some of, them, you know, some of them are very you know, kind of basic. Like, why is, he dissect, why is he into dissecting the whales? Wouldn't this be you know, seen as boring even in its time? And, um, but then that leads into sort of wonderful, well, why would you do this if you're trying to write a book that sells? And that allows us to see that he's about sort of a critique of the way we know and come to know through often, you know, an analysis that sort of dissects things into its parts, and then we think we understand it, but actually we might be missing the whole point. So that'd be an example of a question that sort of just, I just want them to, to read in the interrogative, but then it actually can lead to a really important critical question about the book and, and why it is structured the way it is and why it deals with what it does. Mm-hmm. So. What about other ones? You know, you think of the line in the first uh, chapter where he says, who ain't a slave, right? And the book is very much, it's written in 1850, published in 1851. Um, so this is right after the Compromise of 1850, the sectional crisis is brewing. That's America's national sin. So, but when you have students in the class, who, you know, Ishmael's asking this in a sort of metaphysical way, but, um, you know, I've had uh, times where students will feel pretty argumentative about this because it can seem like it's dismissing the the reality of, of African slavery where people um, weren't sitting in a drawing room thinking about how they didn't have freedom but were in chains and being beaten. You know, I, I always like it when people kind of are willing to look at the book in a critical way and say, was Melville in a way going soft on slavery, even though we can see in other moments in the book where he's deeply against it by sort of analogizing from that and saying, well, we're all sort of slaves in one way or another. And finally, what about Bartleby? Mm-hmm. Uh, 
I prefer not to talk about it. <laughs> you know, the old uh, standby. I think it's, for me, it's a story that um, holds a mirror up to me as a reader because I don't know how many times I've read it, several dozen probably, uh, and have taught it a few times. Um, my response to it differs probably depending on what kind of mood I'm in or what experiences you know, I'm grappling with in my life at a certain point in time. So I think it's easy to, um, to look at the work and condemn the lawyer because there's a lot not to like about him, right? He's safe. He's snug. Um, he wants to sort of control people. He's very conflict averse um, and sees that as uh, a virtue in a way that he's just sort of tolerant and, and um, tends to have a very high opinion of himself. So there's a lot that's obnoxious about the lawyer. But in the end, I think if we put himself, ourselves in his shoes, would we do any better? You know, how would we deal with this man who is refusing to engage at any level, isn't revealing anything about himself, um, his past, and has just decided to occupy the offices as his home and, um, and do what only he wants to do? So it's easy sometimes, I think, to see Bartleby, the, the Scrivener, as this sort of existential hero who refuses to participate uh, and to condemn the lawyer. But as I read it, I think, would I be any better than the lawyer? Uh, who, who at least, maybe because he's so curious and puzzled by this man who's abdicating from, from society and, and life um, because he sees it as pointless, would I do any better? Would I exert more charity? Would I find a way to reach this enigma? Probably not. And so the book, I think, for me, holds up a mirror of, you know, I shouldn't be this critic who's, who so readily dismisses the lawyer as a complete self-satisfied jerk uh, when he probably would go further than many of us would and probably even I would. Thank you. Sure. It was a really great conversation. And Thanks. I think that, you know, Melville is one of the, the authors that for us has been really instrumental in experimenting with this, this form. Mm-hmm. And he gets more interesting the more you think about it, yeah. the more you talk about it. So uh, for for the amount that you brought to the table, thank you very oh, much. Oh, well, thank you for coming up. This is fun. Yeah. I mean, obviously love to, and you do a good job. You ask great questions. That can be hard to do. I hope I didn't go on too long. Fine. Um, so it was perfect. into professor mode sometimes. Okay, thus concludes this meeting of the Mouse Book Club. Special thanks to Professor Stoud, who we hope to meet again in the future whenever we get down into discussing Moby Dick. Please remember to stop by mousebookclub.com and check out our book selection. Of course, mouse books make great gifts, so shop liberally. Special thanks to Tom and Colin and the rest of the team over at Lake County Press in Waukegan, Illinois, who print all of our books. And thanks to you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, Please take a moment and rate us, and if you can, just a couple extra seconds and leave a review. It helps the algorithm bump the show, and hopefully more people will discover us. Or better yet, just take a second and send a link to a reading enthusiast in your life. Thanks again, and please join us next week. <laughs>